Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk with people who are living lives of purpose and doing amazing things that make a positive impact in our world. We take time to listen to them as they reflect on their life journeys and what has shaped them into who they are today and what motivates them to be involved in what they do. Well, kia ora, everyone. Welcome along to the show. I'm glad you could join me as this week we're going to be speaking with Vaughn Winiata. Now, Vaughn's become quite an active voice on behalf of small business. So in this interview, we find out about his background and history and what's led him to take on that role. And we also talk about what it is that small business needs. I know you're going to enjoy this interview. And if you do, this is one of almost 200 interviews of people who are doing inspiring things across Aotearoa, New Zealand. So make sure to check out the back catalog as well. And I'll put some links in the show notes so you can find the website at theseeds.nz. And if you're listening to this in a podcast app, why not hit subscribe so that you can keep up to date with new episodes. Now let's get into this conversation with Vaughn. So it's a real pleasure to welcome Vaughn Winiata, who's the founder of V Formation. Thanks for joining me. Yeah. Hey, thanks, Stephen. Real pleasure to be here this afternoon. Looking forward to it. Yeah, I am too. Um, we were together on a web panel last week, weren't we? So that was a chance right. to yep. get to know each other. And I said, why don't you come on the podcast? And that's how quickly things happen. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's one of the benefits of being in small business. You can do anything at five minutes notice. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Make it up as you go along. Yeah. So uh, what I do on Seeds is I try to find out a little bit about a person's background and yeah. sort of a bit of their history. And in your case, I would love to find out more uh, about what's led you to being an advocate for small business in New Zealand. And so if we could just wind back the clock and yeah. take us right back to the beginning, like I'm talking four, five, six years old. Where were you living? What was it like for you back then? Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, um, we'll go right back to exactly there. So um, that takes me back to where I hail from. So my Tiranga Waiwai is the Hora Whenua, uh, and uh, I'm, I'm part of uh, Ngāti Raikoua Kiteitanga, which is the southern uh, portion of, uh, or part of the Ngāti Raikoua uh, iwi. And um, the Amarai is just outside Lebin, uh, near Hokio Beach. Now, from there, in terms of my early upbringing, I was born in the area. My, my father um, was uh, what was called Whangai. So he was given um, a way to be brought up by an auntie who never had any children. Her husband was away in the Second World War with the Māori Battalion. And that, she happened to be up in the Coromandel. So that's probably why I'm sitting here in Parnell in Auckland talking to you and not still down there. Mm. Uh, so at the age of five, uh, they jumped in their car and rejoined um, his Whangai mum. And uh, I was brought up in the, the, the Waikato, so my father was a builder, and that was where uh, the work was at that time, and that's where we headed. And both of my parents, uh, my mother was of Scottish heritage, strong in education. So they were wanting to give, uh, I have two younger brothers, them the best opportunity. So we went to a good school in Hamilton. To be fair, as somebody that identifies very much um, with my my. Māori roots, my, my descendancy, uh, I was brought up by and large on a Western League. So right. uh, it wasn't until later in life that I was re I decided to reintroduce myself to that on a more active basis, like, yeah. like living my whakapapa yeah. uh, all over again, because I had the time 
and the yeah. availability. So that kind of, you know, by the time I was in the Waikato, I was leaving school, getting my first job. So we're talking the early 80s. Mm-hmm. And New Zealand was a really interesting place then. You know, we were going through the whole arm wrestle with the US about being nuclear free under the Longy government. We'd just mm-hmm. come out of the, the Muldoon era, think big and wage freezes and price freezes. So it was a, it was a very interesting place. I left town in the mid-80s. I'm a big OE. Didn't come back to New Zealand until uh, 1990 and spent the first part of what would be my real career um, actually having to work for a living in corporate. So I, uh, the two most significant uh, parts of that in my corporate career were Sony, Japanese corporate, and Fujifilm, Japanese corporate. And they, they very much formed the way I was thinking as a businessman, uh, looking at market share and the analysis of markets. And even though we're only a small market in New Zealand, uh, the privilege of working for them meant that I got to enjoy the Japanese market, uh, the US market, the Australian market. And um, that Yvonne, was, can I just ask a question there? Because yeah. I'm, I'm really curious about that, the Japanese connection in particular, because yeah. I hadn't told you, but I lived in Japan for five years. So yeah. to me, Japanese culture is really, there's, there's a real richness there and, yeah. and the, the yeah. manner of doing business and things. But just before we talk about that, I'm, I'm actually really curious about that early childhood time and particularly yes. around your identity. And you mm. said, you know, your Maori identity. Um, was that something, yeah, can you just describe that a little bit more in terms of your father's legacy, I guess, and, and the family and things? Because that's something yeah, that yeah, I'd love to know a bit yeah, more definitely. about. So, so in terms of uh, my, my family, um, so the Winniatas and where we are from, very strongly steeped in our Māori roots. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that's something too that a lot of people, like I'm 57 years old, and a lot of people my age will be able to relate to this, that the strength of Toreo and the reintroduction of the Māori culture today um, was not the same in the 1970s or the 60s when I remember growing up, you know, in terms of my father. The most important thing was to get a job. Uh, Most companies that were able to employ people and pay were non-Maori companies, Pākehā companies. So it didn't mean that, 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 you know, the stories about being beaten at school for speaking Maori, meaning te wasn't strong uh, with the generation before us, but it was more about the belief to get ahead was the focus on assimilation, you know, and um, and uh, merging uh, really well. And I think that um, that's something now looking back where the privilege that we have today is that's not a restriction. The encouragement is the other way around, yeah. uh, actually. But, and do, you have, um, and, do you have any memories then of the previous generations, you know, like your, I guess, grandparents or the older people in your life who who maybe were from an earlier tradition or an earlier way mm-hmm. of doing things? Yeah, I mean, I, one of the, the, the um, and I think that most people who have spent time around at Marae uh, will relate to this. By and large, most of, whether it was grandparents or uncles, aunties that were the generation ahead or two uh, mm-hmm. um, older than me, were by and large quiet and very strict and firm, but awesome storytellers. So when it came to gathering around the hearth, which was kind of what we did, you know, after dinner, you'd sit around the fire or the, the at home and uh, the stories would get told. So you, you listened with deep intent to, and I can still remember the sound of voices, 
and the manner in which they talked. Uh, and that's something that I think uh, uh, that I'm learning today is, is you know, we, we hear so much this bandied around buzzword of storytelling. Um, it's not new. You know, it's yeah. been here a long time. And so what so, was it about them that made good stories? What, what do you think it was? What were the key well, characters? They, they, they were a mix of myth and also real stories. Mm-hmm. But I think what made them good stories is they were fulfilling their role because we don't write, Māori don't write anything down by and large. Mm-hmm. So what we're passing on, our legacy, our whakapapa of laying one layer on another is making sure that the generation, the next generation, that story is being told and more than once, mm-hmm. again and again. So. I didn't know that at the time as a five, six, seven, you know, even up to, to early teens, that that was why. But when I think about it now and I'm speaking to my own sons and I have done, um, it's the same thing that's happening all over again. So they were fulfilling their role that their ancestors before them had fulfilled. Yeah. So they were passing on stories that were always going to get passed on. Mm. And, um, and, I, and I think that that oratory side, uh, the speaking side uh, from Māori is something that um, that's our richness, actually. You know, in terms of the way that we communicate, um, especially the yeah. yeah the the oral history, isn't it? I I find because I'm doing this podcast, which is uh, audio. You know, we're we're talking, our voices are going back and forth, and I find mm. it's actually a really rich way to get to depths that you wouldn't with a other ways of doing things um even writing you know that you could write something down but there's something about the richness of a person's voice and the way that they talk and the way they express themselves that you yeah. just can't replace by writing down in a paragraph that, that that's right Stephen. and i think something that occurred to me when i said earlier on that i've been brought up by and large on a westernized leg it's not until you re-engage and you happen to spend time back on a marae, whether it's a general hui, a tangi or, or, or a Christmas party or something, and you have the gathering of the generations, the multi-generations of family all coming together in, in one place, and you start to look at it and you go, the, the magic that happens on a marae is not replicatable off the marae. And so you'll often hear people say things like, looking at the world through a Maori lens, You've mm-hmm. kind of got to be there. And so you'll hear the rhetoric and you'll hear the speak talking about it. But trust me, when you're sitting um, on the Malai, in, in the meeting house, and you look at it and go, this couldn't be done anywhere else. You know, this, yeah. this is unique to be. Then you have that experience. And when you leave the Malai and you go into the non maori world, that world's still with you. You know, it's what you carry inside you. Mm. And, uh, that's part of the privilege that I think uh, the penny only drops as you get older because you right. actually realize what, it, what your experience is all starting to manifest and come together. Mm. And so um, I, I roll by a word I use uh, called totika, which is basically T-O-T-I-K-A, which, which means, you know, with, with a peaceful mind and a respectful heart, you will get the best result. So it's that ability to sort of be, to sit back and, and, and take a wider view of things and appreciate that how you arrived in the meeting house or how we got here in the podcast, that journey is all part of, of, you know, the hour, the river is winding its way out to the mm. sea. And, um, and my job in terms of articulating that to my children and them picking it up, they're, they're coming with me, but there's things I've seen they haven't seen. And so my, 
jobs to you know give the best of that to them. And um, I think that sometimes I'll find in the business world you you will be sitting with people that might not understand when you're saying talking things about multi values and business or something like that. When actually they're not multi values at all; they're just New Zealand values. This is just the way we see things here. We have this wonderful jewel that's on this wonderful jewel of a planet and it's ours and it's ours to protect and look after and the miracle of how my ancestors got here and all that sort of stuff. So it's not like we're trying to say we need to be considered or, or the, 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 the treaty gives us rights or whatever. It just is. It just starts to manifest itself in a way that, that's natural and doesn't have to be mm. um, forced. So just backing step to when you introduced me as, um, as being the founder of V Formation, the V is a reference to like when geese fly in a V through the sky. But coming back to that, uh, the totika whakatoki about the peaceful mind, the respectful heart. When we surround ourselves with people, um, we don't want everybody to be like us. And honestly, when you own a small business, sometimes you just employ versions of yourself because you go, wow, that guy interviewed well. It's because you like what you saw because it's probably you. You're looking at in the mirror. And, you know, by and large, I've been in a sales market, sales and marketing life. So therefore, I love having people who are analytical or, or deep thinkers around me who are able to look at things with a different view. So that V formation about the ability to know that it's your time to go to the front of the V and it's my time to drop back um, is a part of the Whakapapa journey, the people that you know we're meeting because... As a 57-year-old man who's walking through life as um, identifying as Māori, but having brought up on a westernised leg, I don't have another 57 years to be brought up on a Māori leg. Mm. But just like in a three-legged race, you find other Māori legs. And, and in true collaboration, you work with other Māori legs. And they will carry you for that leg of the journey. And I think that's what the V formation to me is, is that, Surround yourself with, it's not how many, it's the maker. And uh, different horses for different courses too, from the small businesses that I move across. And that's the first thing I look at when I go into business with any more than three or four people. The dynamics that are existing between who's running the show, you know, the, the movers and the shakers and the, the operational people or whatever. Mm. Oh, that's really good. Yeah, I think, I think what I pick up on, uh, particularly thinking about Te Ao Māori and different, you know, that conception or that way of, of describing things is it, it to, to me, it's a much more holistic view of the world than the Western um, conception, which, and what I mean by that is sometimes in the West, or at least in my case, you tend to say, well, this is the way it's done and, and this is the outcome that we're after. Whereas I think having a, a broader conception um, and looking for the, the, the bigger impact, or as you described it, sort of the stream of how we're getting to where we're going, um, it just gives it a different lens on the world. Yeah, and, and I think in terms of, um, you know, we uh, as Māori, whilst we have a wonderful story to tell, in terms of the, that never being the fully formed article as a race, you know, mm. we, we identify as the indigenous people of New Zealand, but the magic of New Zealand is that all of the people that made their way here on their walkers, and whether those walkers were 747 jumbos in the 70s or whatever, New Zealand is, is I, I just, whenever I travel and I come back and I think that on average across this country, we are phenomenal 
And, um, you know, we need to get over ourselves in, in many respects. We, you know, there's a bit of tall poppy and stuff like that that goes on. But we're also still a very young, you know, we, we're not even in adolescence yet as a nation. Yeah. And, um, and so, uh, so I guess what I was trying to say there is that I talk about my Māori heritage, but I also have a mother who was from a very strong Scottish heritage. Mm. And if you study a lot of the tribes around New Zealand and the families, Many cases are where settlers have married in. So, for example, if you go to Natukawaru, which is our marae outside Levin, the Nicholson family, big family, clearly not, you know, I'm holding that. Um, but, you know, I, I want a word better than hybrid, but what I mean is the mix of the Māori and these people coming together. That's what we are today. That's what shaped us. And so the strengths and weaknesses on both sides, and there are strengths and weaknesses on both sides. So to be able to look at that and go, you know, this is the magic because the weaknesses are also something that, that we don't want to be sweeping under the mat. You know, our history is, is what we learn from. And if you sweep stuff under the mat, you're going to learn from it. Yeah. No, that's good. So just thinking about your own journey, because this is a really mm. deep rabbit hole that we've jumped into, which I love because mm. that, that's the point of the podcast, actually. I never yeah. know exactly what we're going to talk about. But for yeah. you on your journey, like today, you're talking about how this is a quite a big part of your identity. Can you trace that back to a point in the 1980s or 90s or 2000s when you like that it something switched for you? Or is it been a more gradual realization as you've gotten older that this is a really big part of who you are. No, do you know, I, I think that it was always there, right? Mm -hmm. From being uh, as long as I can remember my earliest memory of living down in the Horapanua and going to the Manai, and I probably didn't know what was going on then, but I, I think it's uh, it can be articulated in a way that I clearly was never ready, you know, to act on what was really inside me. So never at any stage in my life had I, not considered myself anything other than being from a Māori family mm -hmm. and being very proud of that. Um, but the ability to act on that and uh, treasure that, uh, so that point in time yeah. is mm, three and a half, four years old. Okay, so that my, my true whakapapa journey where every single day I'm doing something about that, I'm, I'm in my fourth year now. So, uh, so uh, relatively but, recently then, and, and was that sparked by something or, or what was the genesis for that? Yeah, it absolutely was. And, and, and um, the end of 2015, early 16, my, my marriage uh, of some 22 years ended, mm -hmm. uh, which was unfortunate and, you know, traumatic at the time. But as like anything, time makes the wine and you come out of that and you heal just like we will uh, out of this pandemic. And in a position where there was time and there was space. Um, owned a company called Avalon Audio that was an importer and distributor of a Japanese consumer electronics brand uh, that was sold as a part of the, the uh, end of the marriage, uh, you know, the selling of the family company. And all of these things where that whilst they were quite traumatic experiences to go through at that time, when I look back on it now, absolutely part of the journey where it opened doors and released me into a, okay, we're from here. And, um, you know, I like to describe myself as since then, literally having the freedom to wander the earth as a free spirit, 
so, you know, and sort of harking back to I, my nickname when I was um, working with the Japanese guys, particularly whenever I went to Osaka, was they, they would always call me the samurai guy, right? Because <laughs> I was always going forward and doing something and kind of going out and coming back and, um, you know, that, that hunting mentality, which they just love. And, um, but, you know, in terms of that, connecting back to my Māori roots, the, the exploring and the excitement I would get when I knew I was going back to my roots. So I wouldn't call myself a traveller, so to speak. It wasn't like I was putting on my backpack and wanting to go to Greece for two weeks. It was more of a case of I was wanting to track back to where I was coming from. So driving down and up the island, you know, and, and I'm looking at this and going, this is, this is my ancestors were doing this, mm. not in a Land Cruiser, but, you know, <laughs> walking sort of thing. So... Um, yeah, so, so that gift of being able to do that, um, and I certainly don't see that as a, a late part of my life. Like I said, it was a point when I was ready. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, that's, that's great. Well, one of the purposes of the podcast is to share these journeys because there might be people listening out there who are, who are identifying with what, what you are doing. And, um, yeah, I, I think it's fascinating to explore. Yeah more deeply your origins and your history yeah. and your identities because yeah. we all have multiple identities like you're saying so yeah and it's interesting Stephen you know when you say like how far back can you remember in terms of having no doubt you know who we were as people and always been very proud of my name I, I, I sort of always knew that you know we were a good family and very proud of uh, because there's a lot of success in the wider family mm. and celebrating that success but I, I think that if I can remember one point um, when uh, I was sitting with an, an, an older family member and he, he wasn't like my grandfather or anything like that. He was just someone who had joined a, a family um, a get together around Christmas time. And I might've been in my early teens, like 11 or 12, 13. So he knew I was away at college um, and coming back. And he just said something like, and this is what I say about the stories and the sound of voice where the way something gets delivered, you just never forget it. You know, it's just said in a way where it's locked away. And, um, and he said, you know, you don't have to look like a Māori. You don't even have to sound like a Māori, but you, you will always think like one. And so that's coming back to that um, knowing where you're from and knowing your family line and your journey and everything. So if we want to underpin that with values, they are just there. And so that thinking, what shapes your thinking, I was never really aware of that, but I'd never really strayed too far from my roots. And, and so as far as like, say, deciding one day to learn the guitar or whatever, reintroducing myself to, to, to my culture, to my whakapapa, uh, to my language, um, you, it's like anything. When you want something, you pursue it. But you will only, you know, that, that pursuance has to be authentic. Um, it's not like a romantic chase because, you know, it, it's a long-legged blonde. It's a chase because there is something you value in that that's got a long, you know, you, you know that, that it's part of you. Yeah, that's really good. And I think it, you're right. It, it kind of, it cements your identity and who you are, doesn't it? By understanding where you've come from. So it's, uh, mm. I, I mm. think sometimes, you know, in the West, we, we kind of lose touch as well with our origins or, or you know, grandparents and things and that's one of the shames i think of of generational living where the the people go away from home and maybe don't ever come back and spend time with their grandparents to hear those stories and to to know about the family history 
Yeah, and, and you know, Stephen, that's a real dynamic around New Zealand at the moment where um, a lot of people, and it's happened in our whanau, where older kamatua have passed on right. and actually there is no one around to take their place. And so, because that's the dynamic is that, you know, it was very normal for people of my age to spend some time overseas, then come home and start a family or do whatever, but none of it was back at the marae. Mm-hmm. Um, or, or in, in the local area. So that sort of um, disconnection that had happened in the last generation, that this reintroduction that's going on, and that's what I'm seeing as you go, some of the names that I used to hear, in that they're just gone. You know, they're gone. And what's gone with them are all those stories. Yeah. Um, so that's a shot across my bow to say, well, okay, you know, take a learning from that. I, I've got a role to serve, to, that it's not too late to, to pick that up, um, um, you know, where it was left off. Yeah. No, that's really good. Well, that's actually how I view the podcast because I'm recording in an audio format all of these people's mm. life journeys. And mm. I had one one person wrote to me afterwards that the person I was interviewing, we knew he had, had cancer and he died after we'd recorded it. And the son wrote to me and said, thank you for recording my father's life in this audio yeah. format, you know, and yeah. it's so important, isn't it? Yeah. And, and the other thing about that too, is that these oratory stories, if we think about, um, you know, we go to Europe and these heroic castles that are built out of stone and they last centuries and centuries. We build our marae and our meeting houses out of biodegradable products. They're only going to last, if we're lucky, 100 years. And that's if they don't get um, raided by a challenging tribe and burnt down or, or whatever. Um, or even, or even, you know, when the settlers came and obviously the missionaries and were taking down the carvings and putting up the crosses or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so um, the oratory side of it is because often things were just wiped clean off the face of the earth uh, and could never be found, which was, you know, a, a castle could be burned out, but by and large it was still there, mm-hmm. um, you know, as a monument to, to what was so There are no stone hinges, you know, in, in New Zealand. Which, um, which means the memories in an oral sense um, are, are very much what we're all about. Yeah, oh, that's really good. So turning back to your life, <laughs> mm. we've gone off on this tangent, which has been wonderful. Mm. But thinking back, I'm just thinking, you said you um, were working for these Japanese companies. Um, mm. what, what was your role within that context? And, and what did you learn maybe from the Japanese culture or the way that they interacted? Yeah, yeah. So the first company I, I um, was with, and um, national sales management role was with Sony, and I was there al- almost ten years, mm-hmm. and um, that that was my first introduction. And to be fair, it would have been like working for Apple today, because in 1990, Sony were kind of on the top of the world. Um, mm-hmm. They were innovative. There was products like you know the Walkman had kind of gone, and the Discman had arrived, and the Mini Disc, and the Camcorder, and the sorry, the Handycam. And so it was us and Panasonic, you know, going at it like LG and uh, Samsung do in the um, consumer electronics space today. And for me to be what is by and large a little country boy from New Zealand to all of a sudden get introduced to really big numbers, hundreds of millions of dollars swinging around um, was uh, just something that I'd never dreamed I'd ever get exposed to. From uh, Sony, I moved over to Fujifilm. Um, and that's an optical company. So their specialty in those days was in the days when you had photographs developed one hour 
and you paid 20 bucks for 20 photos, and you mm. might get one set free if they were having a promotion. And then that moved into digital cameras. And um, I was in general management role there. And that was, once again, um, uh, the difference between Sony and Fujifilm is the optical guys. And when I say the optical guys, Japanese, Nikon, Canon, Fujifilm, Olympus, yep. Their, their attention to detail and their, uh, so Sony was like the inventor and they were just putting out all this stuff. So I'm not saying it wasn't, the quality wasn't good, but they would rush things to market. The optical guys were all about perfection. They wanted the best lens. They wanted the best picture. So slowing it right down and being prepared to charge more and take time and get it to market a year later because the quality of the picture and the memory was everything to them. And so, um, for me, in both companies, you know, they were rolling by the whole Kaizen principle and just looking to continually improve. And I think that the bit that I took out of the Japanese was their succinctness, their ability to say something in a very few words, but sum it up perfectly. Because by and large, I was coming from a um, sales and marketing background, which means that verbosity is quite common, where, you know, you would just talk for as long as people let you, like yeah. now. Whereas the Japanese have this ability to just crunch it down. And so, um, yeah, that, I, I mean, I, look, I just, um, this morning, I was on Facebook with my former um, chairman of, of um, Onkyo Pioneer, which is a big Japanese company. And he retired on Friday. And I saw him on Facebook. So we started swapping messages. And Otakata-san was saying he wants to come to New Zealand as soon as he can and, and go hiking in our hills and that. And... I, I honestly, I, I think I'm sure you can, can vouch for this, but for me, once you get accepted by the Japanese, you have a friend for the rest of your life. Mm. Honestly, that the, the, the loyalty. Um, and there is a, there is a parallel in the Maori world. So when I returned home to, to my Taranga Waiwai, it wasn't exactly like the red carpet got laid out and like, woohoo, born. We haven't seen you for 50 years. Wonderful to see you home. I had to make multiple visits to earn the trust that I was actually going to come back again. And I was mm. going to come back again because there's no end of people um, turning up on the marae saying, Oh, I want my whakapapa. And they expect that it's just going to get handed over by the kaumatu and say, bye, never see you again. Sort of thing. <laughs> so, so they test you out and give you a little bit and take it away a little bit and take it away. And that, that was exactly what it was like in Japan that every mm. time that I was with, um, people in the second time and the third time, you could just feel the warmth just mm. growing mm. Um, to a point when, you know, there was just no question that you had this um, flexibility, this understanding with each other. Yeah. Oh, that's really good. Yeah. I, mm. I vouch for that as well. I, like I said, I, I was one year in Osaka and four years in Tokyo and I worked yep. for a company called Mitsui, which is one yep. of the big trading houses. Yes. So they're massive, you know, 40,000 employees around the world. Basically yep. every country has, an office somewhere. Um, yep. And so I learned a huge amount from that experience. And you're right. It, it, it very much is about relationship and connection and getting that level of trust so that, you know, I, so I work as a lawyer and you want to document everything, right? But if you've got the trust, you could write it on the back of a napkin and that would yep. be that would be yep. enough because you yep. trust each other. So, yeah. Yeah. So, so let's bring us up to speed in terms of what you're mm. doing. Cause I would love to talk about small business here in Aotearoa, mm. New Zealand and 
the yeah. things that you're seeing and things. What happened after that um, in terms of... Yeah, so, so when Avalon was sold in 2017, so, you know, heading into 18 and, and that deciding what I would like to occupy myself with, um, I was fortunate to be involved in a small business community, uh, which was about the creation of the Small Business Council. So Labour had just come to power. Stuart Nash was the small business minister. And uh, Timby Powell, who was the mayor of Tauranga, he had approached the small business minister about getting a small business council going. Uh, there was already one under the national government, but this was kind of giving it some more horsepower. And so a group of small business owners uh, we're gathered together down here at Britomart in the Westpac building. You know, mm -hmm. it would have been a couple of hundred of us down there. And that was the beginnings of the Small Business Council. Now, I wasn't thinking along the lines of what I'm thinking now. I'd created V-Formation, but it really was to just be advisory mentoring, thinking, hey, this is really nice and relaxing and I don't have to work too hard and, and um, it pays the bills. Um, and then... I got exposed to the small business community, and this is not probably going to be, you know, in terms of contentious issues. Um, Stuart Nash said, or he requested a one-year report. So a small business council went away and they had 12 consecutive monthly meetings that ran through to July 2019. And their job was to deliver a report. And you can go to the MB website and you can download the small business report or strategy for New Zealand. And when that started to come through, I, I and many others in the small business community became very disenfranchised because we felt like um, they had lost their audience because what we'd originally talked about and what was being produced as a 28-page report really was a document that had just been through what looked like every desk or hall or door of bureaucracy in Hemby and in the Beehive. So this thing was kind of like, what small business person would find any purpose for this? So whilst there was frustration that, that the Small Business Council and the report uh, wasn't really um, and this is me speaking, not, not you know, the wider community, because there isn't really a situation like that right now. But it wasn't really a genuine reflection of the small business community. It was just someone's opinion um, right. and produced into a lovely report. Was like, okay, but the small business community still exists. There still is a coalface. We still are out here grafting away, you know, um, fixing leaky taps, cleaning pools, pouring coffee, whatever. So that got me talking with a community that is fairly significant now mm. of um, we need to start to work together to create what could potentially be a wider sector, a small business sector voice so that um, we can turn up down in Wellington and that's what's happening me. I'm going down to see Stuart Nash on Thursday. They're going to go, Hey, you know, these guys can articulate themselves quite well. They kind of have a good feel. So without saying, Let's not criticize the report that you created, but this one is raw and it's real and it's bureaucracy free. So if you want the unedited movie, watch this one. And at the same time, what we small businesses are what have a danger of doing is we are not very good at saying this is the one, two, three most important things to the wider sector because we actually don't know because we've never worked as a cross sector uh, group for, you know, You've got chambers of commerce, you've got business associations, you've got EMAs, you've got all these groups, but they don't collaborate or work together. They don't even, you know, they're in their individual silos. Yeah. So they might as well be different iwi, so to speak, you know, running their own race, getting their own settlement uh, from the government. And um, I guess that sometimes they are focused regionally, aren't they, rather than thinking across the Well, well that is exactly it. The, the regional focus, while convenient to do, 
Um, and, and to be fair, there'd be some chambers of commerce around New Zealand that are actually guilty of running their own chambers like a business and not needing to think outside their territory. So that's, that's kind of just the lay of the land. That's the way it yeah. is. But the vision in terms of V formation becomes what? And I'm using three words, really, which are small business evolution, meaning that look, we, we will continually evolve. But the reality is we're very fragmented, um, very hard to communicate and get to, quantum mass of some you know, 600,000 people and almost a half a million businesses that maybe dropped a bit after the lockdown and the pandemic, but there or thereabouts. Um, how, how do we create some cohesion across that group? So the vision and the group that I'm with, is about that's actually a real thing and maybe there is a uh, point in time where the government will go you know what we're going to whether it's PGF provincial growth fund money or something we're going to put a half a million bucks in and we're going to create a small business institute that will be private sector led but we'll kick it off with a government injection mm. and and screw ahead on the top of the small business community because I think if say for example people like Kirk Hope from Business uh, New Zealand was tuning into this or there could be other people like Michael Barnett from the chamber. They might go, no, that's not right. We've got leadership. But then I would debate that because the, the, the reality is, is no one can put their hand up and say, I'm the king or I'm the leader or I represent, you know, the seaweed. We, we can't. None of us can. But so just talk us through, I, I'm just keen to understand how you would describe the small businesses in New Zealand. You just gave us some statistics before. But mm. I, the reason I want to highlight this is that I think it's a little bit like an iceberg. You know, you see a few examples and you don't realize the vast number that sit beneath the surface. Um, can you just talk us through some of those statistics? Yeah, and, I, I guess and, the best analogy. What you, yeah, what do you mean by small business? Like, yeah, so, so if we want to look point? at the hierarchy or, or the, the um, <laughs> I hate the word, but if we want to look at the ecosystem of small business, you know, those 600,000 people uh, and how they worked, an analogy I like to think of is that you know, when I first joined Sony in 1990, uh, cell phones, we've kind of only been here, not, you know, uh, not long. And Bell South had come and then Bell South got taken over by some, it ended up as Vodafone anyway. And so the cool people who used to leave their cell phones sitting on their tables at restaurants to show that they had a $2,000 cell phone that cost like five bucks a minute to use. Um, there, there's a part of the small business community like that that's connected and you have, 10 people on your speed dial that you can call and we're a very connected community but then we've got a whole lot of other people that just can't afford a cell phone and so that was in those days most of New Zealand and then you know we get to a point where we've all got cell phones you know they're lying in the bottoms of kids play toy boxes these days and so this digital enablement that will need to happen to the small business community is that phase that will go through where we're all plugged into a digital platform and that's IRD banking you know, and everything is pretty much uh, plugged into the government. Mm -hmm. So coming back to the small business community now and describing it, look, it's a terrible word to use, but uh, by and large, we're a massive tribe of piss little one-man bands. 70% of us are driving around in vans and utes and Ubers and whatever, coffee guy carts. Um, you know, the unicorn-type businesses that might have uh, owned their own building in Penrose that's distributing stock and, um, you know, got uh, uh, corporate customers, government customers, they've got, you know, a number of, like, sales channels. That is way less than, than you know, probably less than 5%. So as far as turnover is concerned, 
Um, I think you'll find about 90% are sitting under three mil. Um, and, you know, I mean, that's significant if you're only employing a few staff, but it's not really a big business in the whole scheme of things. So when we say that word SME, you know, small to medium enterprise, <laughs> it's really lots of S, bugger all M, <laughs> you know, sort of thing. And, um, and, uh, and, and I don't think that's about to change. In fact, I think that's going to get worse post-pandemic. I, I think that, you know, the unemployment queues are going to grow, but there's going to be a lot of people that had good jobs, very intelligent, don't want to be taking the unemployment benefit and are going to think of something to do. And if there is something that is always really common in the small business community is we're great at sniffing out opportunities. We, we find out how to make money out of clacking spoons outside the shop. We can do it. Mm. So I think you're going to see uh, maybe 18 months, two years from now, a flood of small businesses come back into the, the sector. So the 97% of small businesses that make up all businesses in New Zealand will probably become 99 I think eventually, um, and you know the third of the the GDP that they sort of contribute now, I think will go higher um, because whilst small businesses are struggling, the GDP is coming down. So as a ratio, I still think that small business is going to be just as significant to the recovery of the New Zealand economy. Yeah, no, I I agree with you, but the thing to highlight in my mind is just how many there are out there. And the reality is that we're dealing with these small businesses every day, all the time. But like you say, very often they're one, two, three people. So the resources are devoted to getting the next sale, doing the next bit of work rather than advocacy or you know, pitching for better conditions for that particular type of business. So. Look, I would say more than 90% of small businesses that start have never heard of MB never will, have never heard of the Small Business Council, have never heard of a small business report, never heard of Born Winnie Outer. They open the door in the morning, which is probably before the sun goes up, and they close it at night before it goes down, and then they look after their kids or their family or their whatever. These are time-poor, uh, hard-working people that are not on LinkedIn, are not doing podcasts. So <laughs> we're kind of, you know, someone could actually say to me, and we'll go, you know, we'll you know, how connected are you really with the small business community? I mean, I've got an email database of 57,000, right, which is small businesses, and I've cut them up into pods so that my MailChimp surveys are accurate. And I'm not scratching the surface. You know, there's yeah. 600,000 people in this community. But what I have learned when gleaning feedback from my database is that, yeah, and I, and I think anyone that deals with analysis or numbers, it's ironic that you ask 100 people a question or 1,000 people, you get there or thereabouts the same answer. You know, it's, it's um, and so um, it's not so much the quantity or the size of my database, it's who's in it. Yeah. And so, it's, you know, it's the grooming of it to make sure that these people are actually small businesses and they've not, you know, sold up and gone and done something but haven't told me in my database. So that's my biggest problem is maintaining the database. Yeah, um, keeping the, it current. So, yeah. so just turning then, just thinking about the ideal conditions for small business. So mm. I, 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 politics is important and, I, and we'll probably go there, but leaving aside the names of national or labor or any political yeah. party, yeah. if we could strip away the politics from it, what would be the conditions that you think that would help to enable these sorts of people to succeed yeah. and, and thrive? Yeah. Oh, look, that's a great question and, and um, you know I spent the weekend doing a scorecard so let's not mention any names but in terms of a matrix of you know what's the tax offer from the parties what's the employment um, conditions for hiring and buying staff and you know uh, general compliance tax whatever so 
if we look at that, um, I think that most small businesses, because once again, they don't think about this when they open the business. All they think about is selling a widget, getting paid for it and banking the yeah. money. Is a level playing field with any other type of business. So if let's we say that big business is the other type of business. Um, but it's the level playing field that I talk about is if I, you know, my own personal experience from running a business and then people I talk to, the, the normal thing is to be sitting at home a couple of hours a week, taking care of PAYE, GST, um, you know, any other compliance, ACC, uh, or it just could be doing the roster for your staff. So the administrational side is you look at the parties and go, which get it? Because, you know, an overused and patronizing buzzword is productivity. And you'll often sit, hear people talk about, oh, we don't stack up well against the OECD and probably yada, yada, yada. And it's been a banal discussion that's gone on for years. But the reality is that you look at it and you go, gee, I think these people are actually going to find an hour extra a week that will free up because it may not be that they can spend an hour more at the coalface. It might be an hour more with their family or something, you know. And so um, the parties do differ. There, you know, there's no question that, that there are some parties that are more friendly to small business than others. Um, but it's surprising who those parties are. So uh, from my perspective, as far as scrutinising the manifestos and the policies to the parties and going, well, okay, it's the blind coke test. You know, which one would you take as your medicine for the next three years? Um, there are standouts there, but they're not where you'd expect them to be. Um, I personally believe that the small business rhetoric coming out of the, um, the majors is um, it's predictable. It's been the same rhetoric that's gone on for the last three, four elections. And, um, and, and to be fair, the two major parties are probably about an inch apart. You know, whether you wanted to call uh, National uh, light red or, or Labour light blue, they are, they are so close to the centre now, it's not funny. Um, so, so, you know, MMP was supposed to sort of deliver a whole lot of minor parties and you would have thought by now there'd be a small business party. But, um, but it hasn't to be. It's sort of, you know, the, obviously it's, it's Green and Act and first that are our, that are our minors and that's it for now yeah no that's good it's just it's just interesting to hear different perspectives and and that's what the podcast is for is to to hear these things can i just ask yeah you well you know and on, on that note um Stephen, if, if someone was thinking about hey i've started this business and i'm going to work my guts out but i want to do it because i want that money to flow into my bank account and not have to go after the off to the ird as provisional tax sometime next year um I think fundamentally, if, if you know, if, a, if I was flying down to Auckland as a small business representative, they say you can rub the genie's bottle and have three wishes. At the top would be a favourable tax rate. That's that's all there is to it. So if it was a flat company tax rate and no provisional, I would consider that a massive win um, for the small business community. Mm. Um, but so so in terms of the offering or the proposals for small business across the parties, uh, yeah, there's only one that really stands out as trying hard for small business and then there's another that gets close but um you know I, I will actually post on that on linkedin as we get closer to the election because i think that it's too early i think some of them are still mucking around um you know with their policies and i think late july is probably when they should have it all out by. yeah and just having thought about this a lot clearly when you look around the world is there any jurisdiction or other place that you think is doing it pretty well for small business yeah, for small business. Yeah. Look, I, I think that uh, Singapore, so if you go to Singapore and you have a look at the Temasek model, 
you know, where they created the, almost a provincial growth fund for small business and started putting skin in the game to, to because, you know, what we'll tend to get in New Zealand as we go down that age-old track of startup and technology and innovation being the sexy part of town, so therefore the Callahans and that will offer a bag of lollies. Um, and the reality is most small businesses, so long as they're employing people and they are providing homes and roofs overhead as far as the nation, I don't care what type of business you are. Mm. You know, it's just if you're viable, you are a business. Um, so Singapore would be the one place that I think has the government has thought long term for the small mm. business community. And if there was anything I could steal, their version of the provincial growth fund, which is Temasek, um, which I think is now worth about 330 US billion as far mm. as, you know, because what they've done is that they're just basically the businesses they've invested in are just growing. And that, you know, they've, they've kind of got in at the ground level and sure there would have been losses. Um, but, you know, I'd say uh, that's the sort of visionary stuff that I think has got mm. to happen in New Zealand. And it's, so I, what I'd like to see in New Zealand is someone say, well, okay, we're going to take three billion. We're not going to give it to Shane James next time around. We're going to plop it into Kiwi Bank and that's going to be a fund for small business. And we are going to be interested in talking to people who don't own a home but I've got a great idea. And if their business plan ticks these boxes, so rather than going through the innovation model that Callahan, it would attract anybody that's actually wanting to contribute to our GDP, whether it's cleaning a pool um, or, um, or, or, you know, uh, mowing lawns. It's, it's, um, it's a small business. It's interesting, isn't it? Because it does take that a little bit of a long view <laughs> and that's part of our problem is with the short election cycle it's hard to implement some of these things to say mm, well, mm. We're, we're looking yeah, and, to and, 20 years from now 30 years from yeah now. And, and, and Stephen what, what this pandemic and this lockdown is going to accelerate you know the three big trends it's going to accelerate is for businesses to survive they're going to have to adopt new technologies so the zoom that you and I are having before lockdown I'd never had one and so that's not, you know, it's, but, um, but in terms of digital enablement and digital transformation has been a, a, a fluffy butt word that's been bandied around. All of a sudden it's got real because there are so many businesses in the pandemic that suffered because their front end was not digitized. It wasn't enabled. The second, the second one is the retrenchment or the withdrawal from global supply chains. So with the borders wrapping up, even though they will open up eventually, um, Companies relying on import and distribution are having to look locally. And so obviously Trump's trying to talk that up big time. Uh, but the reality is that's actually a real thing. Is, you know, and I think that pro government procurement, you know, like for example, all the footpaths in central Auckland are made of Chinese cobblestones. I just don't understand that. But obviously there's a reason. You know, we might have a sister relationship with the city or whatever. Um, they should be getting made out of a Hanua rock you know in, in the hills up there um and and then the third one is oligopolies so some businesses have gone through this where they are pandemic proof so they've got liquidity and cash and are going to be able to pursue opportunities post pandemic which means that there will be uh, an equality gap in the small business world where some were okay some were not okay so they get left in the dust so um, mergers, acquisitions, hence the word oligopoly is probably a little over the top. But what I mean by that is there will be um, alliances formed where uh, the pandemic favoured people because of the industry they were in or they were on the balance sheet of some 
business that had a very robust balance sheet. Yeah. Because that was the problem, you know, with the government funding and go off to the bank and get an extension on your loan. You know, if the equity in your house is all tapped out and you have no real assets in the background, they're not interested in jet skis, um, then you're, you're kind of up against the wall. Uh, but then there are many other businesses out there that would have had, you know, property and stuff. So that's what I see emerging out of this. But we're not going to see that for a year, yeah. um, you know, as far as those trends. But those are very real trends um, that, that uh, you know, sheesh. You know, when you've got a half a million businesses, you will see those trends yeah. <laughs> come through big time. Yeah, for sure. One of the interesting things with the lockdown and then the recovery as you know, we're entering into this next phase has been the emphasis on buying local, support mm. local. Like mm. I'm seeing it everywhere I look. There's like hashtag support local. And that presumably is a positive thing for local smaller businesses, right? Yeah, I, I think that in terms of um, uh, almost like stating the obvious, we should have been doing it all along, but, you know, we've been born and bred on stuff out of China's cheap as they buy it. And, and I think that there's a certain retailer that invented that, but that was just a time and point in our economy in, in the late eighties and the nineties. But I think that they buy local, like for example, um, I used to do everything in the supermarket, but now I go down to the local veggie shop and get, you know, my greens and, and you spread the money around. And mm. so I guess I, uh, you could say that we're shopping more compassionately mm. um, and, and rather than lazily. And uh, I, I, look, I, I think the buy New Zealand maids and the buy local things, I, I honestly think they could do a better job, but yeah. they probably needed the lockdown to see what sort of job they needed to do. So rather than criticise that, I'm sure that they'll be looking at it and going, let's not lose this momentum. Because what we don't want is just to return to our tired old ways. And there is a risk that we could do that. You know, the borders open up and all of a sudden people forget the magic that came, the silver lining that was inside the cloud of the lockdown. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's interesting because that the, the talk that we did together on the panel, mm. I was talking about paradigms of thinking and yes. the old ways of thinking, which was really focused on extraction. How much profit can we pull out? How much can we take? And the new ways of thinking, which is more about a regenerative economy. And actually there's more than just how much money this business makes. It's also all these other impacts that it's having at a local level and employment and all these other things. So it'll be interesting to watch. And, yeah. And, and, and Stephen, I, I think that something that I find almost heartbreaking is I've got the sinking feeling that we're going to return to our tight old ways. Yeah. I think that uh, if we were allowed to, and you know, if the world announced tomorrow morning that all borders were open and there was no more virus, I think you would find that you won't recognize what it was like between, you know, sorry, you, you will find that it was identical pre-pandemic and before. Mm. And I, and this is not a criticism. I just don't think that the depth of thinking around what is required to take us to an economy that goes, how much is enough? How much is us truly living to the values that we subscribe to, that we've got this amazing country that actually, if it wasn't for the pandemic, we could have lost it. You know, this has actually done us a favour to stop and take a breather. Um, but I'm not seeing the detail in any of the parties that shows that they are serious about that. You know, mm -hmm. I'm hearing lots of words like a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to the reserve the way we did. Sorry, to, to review the way we do business. But I'm not seeing the gravitas, you know, in and around that. Um, and I think it's going to take people like myself and others to be more vocal about that. Um, because I, we just have to, you know, it's a, uh, um, otherwise, yeah, we're, we're not even a smart breed of monkeys. All we've done is fallen out of our tree and climb straight back up it. 
Yeah. Yes. Well, what, one way that we can help is by having these sorts of conversations and get people listening and thinking and talking. And um, that's a start. And it sounds like you've got meetings coming up where you can raise these sorts of issues again. Um, if people are interested in finding out more, is there a place that we can direct them to? Like you mentioned an email newsletter, for example. Is it if somebody yeah, wanted so, to sign so up? So basically, the, the, the B Formation website has a registration page on it. And um, the uh, and I, I send out a weekly newsletter to to my my database. At, at, well, to be fair, I send out stuff if I think it's worth talking about. <laughs> um, but uh, but you know, in terms of um, the meetings coming up, I mean, when I meet with Minister Nash on Thursday, you know, we're not taking a pile of grievances in there. Far from it. It's actually with the intent to keep the continual corridor going. That mm. This is a long, slow road we've got to recovery. And the closer we can bring the coalface of the small business community to the beehive and build that three-wire bridge between the two, which we believe doesn't exist right now, the better off we'll be for it. So, um, yeah, so, so I guess that that voice, that we, and, and we will call the government out, but not beyond policy. You know, I think, I think we've got to uh, trust the government that they are actually doing their best best it's our job to give them some direction you know the government does need to be led on some matters yeah it's interesting because it's very there's some parallels with what you're talking about and doing and the not-for-profit ngo charity space which i do quite a lot in and we're having similar discussions to what you're having but in a different context where you yeah. know, not-for-profits, charities, they're being impacted as well. So how do we yeah. make sure that that voice is heard and that people know that this, this, would have, this will have a huge impact on these types of organizations as well? Yeah, well, well the interesting thing is I find a real synergy in terms of um, uh, following the tribal side of my life and the small business side because the, the, the Maoris and the small businesses have a lot in common in the sense that um, if we look at like the whole treaty negotiation and representative head negotiators for Māori, what happens is they rise up the food chain, they start to come back to Marae, but they're talking like in crown speak, so they get dis disconnected from the people they started to represent, so all of a sudden you've got a hierarchy that's created from trying to negotiate in a non-Māori world. It's exactly the same in small business where there's been no shortage of advocates for small business that turn up down in Wellington, but they have to navigate their ways through 30,000 bureaucrats and they end up just being a version of they become 30,001. And, um, and so we lose them. You know, it's kind of like we sent you out to do a job and we never saw you again. Right. <laughs> because they're sitting down in Wellington at the top table having good kai and, you know, why would they come back? Thing. Um, so I kind of see some parallels there that, you know, in a kind of more humorous uh, sense are actually, um, uh, you know, many a true word said in jest sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. No, that's really good. Can we finish off by my asking you about one other slightly different topic, which is um, Kay Marie Dunn was on the call or, or on the webinar that we were doing. And one of the things she was talking about was Maori enterprise. Um, mm. Have you got any thoughts about that and um, anything, any messages or, or things that you'll talk about with Minister Nash? <clears throat> yeah, well, well, I think that one of the interesting things that uh, from Maori enterprise is that and, and it's, a, it's a really good question from my perspective is that if you go and download the 28 page uh, small business strategy, mm -hmm. there is not one word that references any Māori or any Pacifica. 
Now, someone listening to this might go, well, why should it? Because it's for the total small business sector. But in terms of Māori enterprise, um, and particularly in the cooperative space where, where Māori have proven that, that they can do this, you go, well, okay, if it's not there, where is it? So, you know, is it Tapuni Kokri or is it whatever? And, and the thing is that, once again, many people who decide to get into business in the Māori sector wouldn't have heard of a lot of the stuff. It's not like it's in your face and it's offered. So I, I think that to answer the question about Kay Marie, what, what, what she was talking about is, to be fair, um, they're kind of a bit abandoned. It's, it's kind of like um, there are a couple of little, you know, to be fair, Tapuni Kaukuri is probably more about tech and startup as, as, as Callahan. But I think that the irony that I find in the small business report is that if you jump on the head page of MB, who are the owner of the small business report, you know, it sits under their wing, you'll have no shortage of finding a spiel about the Māori values they subscribe by and how they're collaborative and mm. courageous. And then you go to the small business report and there's nothing. So I would have to say that, well, those are just words over there. And, and that's where, so that's not a criticism. What that's saying is, hey, something's fallen into the crack here as yeah. we go along. And I think that Kay Marie has uh, probably um, stood up, well, well, sorry, made me think about, my God, how many more? are out there that don't know where to start. So therefore, never, they never become anything, mm. which is a lost opportunity. Mm. Um, it's not a shortage of funding. It's, a, it's actually a voice. You know, so for example, if we use uh, Pani and Newton, Soul Movement, Ahimateo, where she did a fantastic job through just using her nous on how to create a voice for Ahimateo, there's probably not, you know, if we had to say, who's the voice? for Māori enterprise, new Māori enterprise, new startup, and you'd struggle to, to pop up a name. There are certainly plenty of um, wonderful Māori entrepreneurs that have done very well that, that kind of have succeeded in segments. And, um, and you know, you, you can pull uh, these people out. But, you know, you and I, both when we were sitting on that podcast with Kaimarae, there'll be lots of Kaimarees around the country, mm -hmm. I can assure you. So that, that kind of like was a little bit of a, um, um, a moment of truth for me, really, going far out even i had forgotten about that yeah well that's why it's good to to meet with diverse range of people stay at the coalface right because then you're actually hearing different perspectives and um, yeah and and you know the interesting thing about about Marie, and i'm sure she's got her own network these are articulate people who are capable of um communicating their wants and needs so it's really about like i said before about getting that three-wire bridge between uh, the jungle or the abyss and uh, the beehive, the fourth floor of the beehive where uh, Stuart Nash sits and that we're able to transverse. We're not wanting an autobahn or a highway or anything. We're just wanting the ability to send someone in and out mm. with because we don't have time to be sitting around and mucking around either. Mm. And so from, from the Māori enterprise perspective, um, yeah. You know, and it's like, for example, uh, I think all New Zealand small businesses should be able to go somewhere where they say, I would like to subscribe to a set of Māori values. Because it, look, let's face it, a, a value in Māori is the same as a value anywhere in the world. It's the same lighthouse in principle. It's you're just choosing one what order and you know what, what way would you like to assemble them in, in your business. Mm. And so you know when you go across nine or whatever, you might only choose three or four. Mm. But uh, I, I just think that that to me is not looking at business through Māori enterprise or Māori lens. That's a New Zealand lens. That's our lens. Yeah. That's who yeah. we are. 
And that's kind of consistent with where we began the conversation, which was talking about your own identity. And I think that's the beauty of the podcast is we can kind of pick out bits and pieces from it. But when I hear your own childhood, your young adulthood, like that was an important part of your identity, but it wasn't until later that it really flourished, you know, three or four years ago, right? Well, yeah. And, and I think in terms of our cultural journeys, you know, that, that, that waka, the tree that gets cut down in the forest, turned into the waka and dragged to a river and then it makes its way out to the sea. That journey that, that I'm on, it was always going to be a journey. You know, it's, so that's what, um, when we talked about, you know, at what point did the light bulb go off or whatever, it was always there. And then there was a point where I was just ready for it. Yeah. And I think that there's many Māori that could probably, you know, subscribe to that, that just go, it was almost a seamless transition from one point to another. Yeah. Well, I've really appreciated hearing your journey because I think it's important to have different perspectives. And um, yeah, I've really enjoyed hearing about the, the, I guess, the progress through your life of getting involved in different things and also some of your insights, even about Japan, you know, and the things yep. that you learned from those people, um, but also now the role that you're playing as an advocate for small business. And um, thank you for sharing your thoughts. What we'll do is... Hey, Stephen, it's been awesome um, to join you and uh, certainly look forward to, to um, following your other podcast too. <laughs> oh, that's great. Well, we'll put in the show yeah. notes some links to things that we talked about and hopefully it's the start of more conversations, right? Because there's yeah. lots of people listening and, and they'll then have um, material that they can go and talk with. So thanks so much for coming onto the show. Okay, awesome. I do hope you enjoyed that conversation with Vaughn. There's some links in the show notes to the things that he's involved in. And be sure to check out the back catalog because we're about to hit 200 episodes. Until next time.